We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land throughout Australia on which we are recording. We pay respect to elders past, present and emerging. Hello and welcome to The Doyen Interviews, the podcast that speaks to inspiring women from the art, architecture and design world. I'm Bridget Nathan and I'm glad you've tuned in. Thank you also to Anon for the beautiful introductory music. I mean, it's just like a deep, a deep familiarity. I think we um, we have rounded edges ourselves, and most of the things that we would have been around in our entire existence has always been things that are have irregularity, have texture, and it's very rarely things that are perfectly straight or linear or rectilinear or have angles and sharp angles or right angles. It's it's um. I don't think it's how we're tuned as humans, like as biological creatures um, or psychologically either. So, Welcome to the next episode of the Doyen Interviews, where we'll be spending the morning with Elora Hardy. Elora Hardy is a notable Canadian designer who lives and works from the island of Bali where she grew up. Elora is the founder of Ibuku, a pioneering architecture and design firm that builds primarily with bamboo. When I think of bamboo, I imagine its connection to and reactive growth to the environment in which it's grown. Bamboo is an organic material, and it's also the enabler of many organic form structures. In its twists and turns, bamboo has the ability to create magical organic forms. Magical is a word that is often used to describe Ibuku. From a sustainable building perspective, bamboo is interesting because it releases over 30% more oxygen into the atmosphere when compared to the equivalent mass growth of trees. Bamboo is an evergreen perennial flowering plant of the grass family. Bamboos are some of the fastest growing plants in the world and are notable and significant in many parts of Asia due to the climatic opportunities for growth. Alike to wood, bamboo has a high strength to weight ratio, and it could also be argued that bamboo has a greater tensile strength than steel and withstands compression better than concrete. In this episode, we focus on the use of bamboo as a building material at a human scale, focusing on the central question. If humans are curvy creatures, why is so much of architecture made of hard lines? Touching on concepts such as the Industrial Revolution and its impacts on both the environment and systemized production, this episode explores some of the thinking behind designing and building with this material. Following Alora's career, initially attending art school, then working in fashion in New York, before returning home to rejoin her family legacy, which includes the establishment of the Green School, a now global organisation that was organised by her father and stepmother, John and Cynthia Harvey, inspired by the local craftspeople and communities who handcraft the bamboo structures that are synonymous with the Hardy family, this episode discusses working with bamboo from a female founder's perspective and shares the framework of family, culture, creativity, challenge and grit, all in which are required for these buildings to be born. So, Elora, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Bridget. Well, I guess to start off with, it would be great if you could discuss a little bit about your background and how you started to walk down the career of design. I grew up in Bali and um, knew that I was um, knew that I was in love with the visual world. I guess you'd call it from the beginning. Um, also, I guess the imaginary world. But it's, but I I pretty quickly picked up a lot of skills to do with drawing 
and had the chance um, to get my own costumes made and to help design my own house when I was a little kid. Um, my parents were just super creative and like made those made those opportunities feel like um, just the normal way of things. So I, and I also just really got into, um, you know, you can sort of as a kid, like retreat into a book or into a skill. Um, and so I, I just, I devoted a lot of time to, to drawing and to, um, you know, playing with dolls and, and, and exploring materials and, and flying, like making and then flying kites and just all sorts of making things. And so that eventually led me to assume that I should be in, in you know, in the world to do with visual arts. And I um, had a, the chance to go to a, an art school, a, a high school for the performing and visual arts. Um, and that was an amazing thing because I got to like just develop, you know, develop more skills and more confidence and connect with other people who were on that same path. But it didn't, it didn't point to any obvious route for like what to do um, for a living. And so I got pretty attached to the idea of just getting a job. Um, I'd had very entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial artistic parents and a lot of the people, um, a lot of the um, international people, especially who were attracted to Bali in the eighties were just really creative and adventurous and, and entrepreneurial. And they somehow from all of that, I decided that a job was definitely the right thing to have. And I, I managed to get a job. Finally, I, um, I, I felt pretty insecure about it all. I didn't really know how to define what exactly I was really good at. I was good at a lot of things and I just felt like I wanted to use I wanted to be artistic in, in my work and to put that to use in the world. The actual art world was something that was um, that became more clear to me in school because as a kid I didn't realize that there's a division in the Western world between fine arts and daily life. Design bridges those two things, but I didn't have the vocabulary for that really. So I thought I was going to be an artist, but then I didn't really appeal to me to, to dive into that conversation to the extent of... Um, being in a gallery world or anything like that. So then I realized, finally, after doing a fine arts degree, that I just wanted to be somewhere in design. And so finally, I got the chance to be involved in, in fashion, sort of faked my way into it. I didn't have any relevant skills or experience in fashion, but I just got the chance um, to, to be helpful um, by painting on fabrics. And, um, and then I sort of got stuck there for like five years in New York. And I say stuck because it was, re it was really exciting at first, especially, but then later I just, I relied on the security of being associated with a um, prestigious brand, with having a secure living, and um, at, at the same time really felt like I had to do something that would be sustainable. And that I couldn't find in New York or in fashion, and finally I found it back home. So what I'm leading now is a team that had already formed to build the green school because my dad and stepmom founded the green school and pulled together this team to build the entire campus out of bamboo. They made this huge commitment to be as sustainable as they could. Um, I was sort of tricked into that. I didn't realize that I was turning into an entrepreneur. I just thought I'd come and help out, but it, it needed a lot of help. <laughs> I'm still here. <laughs> 
Well, the architecture of the Green School is um, so, so amazing. Um, I can't wait to hear a little bit more about the thinking behind that in this episode, um, but also the spaces that are created in terms of pedagogy and um, open plan learning environments. They're um, really quite amazing and it's very, very exciting to have seen the Green School um, expand to many countries overseas. Um, I'm interested to hear a little bit more about what it was like to live in New York and then um, come home. So you worked in fashion in New York and then you returned to Bali. What was that like? It was wild. It was really exciting. Um, I had fallen in love with what the team had already been doing. They'd built these um, like incredible, almost cathedral-like um, structures together. And I just wanted to be part of that. And um, I had briefly considered studying architecture in, in university um, and very quickly got talked out of it by some tired young architects. <laughs> so, so I was uh, saved from um, any actual training. <laughs> and actually, I guess um, the Green School itself just has attracted a lot of really interesting people to Bali. Um, it's very broad term, green school. So people sort of put what they're hoping for into it. But when it comes down to it, like the kids get to be connected to nature and they get to see what's possible in the world um, in, a, in a different way. They, they, can, they can see a different future by being in, in the buildings and by learning the way that they learn there. And um, that that's that's really made a big impact on me. And I think that I think that creating the spaces that we do um, when they're homes or um, hospitality projects or whatever they are, I think that I hope that the kind of structures that we make when when people are in them, they it just sort of opens up or it takes off the blinders or it opens up a whole new perspective onto what the future could look like. By that, I, I just mean like feeling connected to nature and being in a being in a space made of buildings that that did that the materials of them and the process of building them did more good than harm. Um, and I don't mean that in terms of the form, because I hope that like endless creativity will will result in many, many different kinds of shapes and looks and and structural systems in the future, even out of bamboo or any natural material. It just sounds like um, an incredible place to learn and to be surrounded by nature. Um, I love that phrase that you just used, doing more good than harm. When you think about these natural environments that you're designing, there are the obvious benefits such as enhanced access to fresh air and cross-flow ventilation, um, a lower carbon footprint. But what else do you think are the benefits that they add to people's lives? I mean, it's just like a deep, a deep familiarity. I think we... Um, we have rounded edges ourselves and most of the things that we would have been around in our entire existence has always been things that are, have irregularity, have texture, and it's very rarely things that are perfectly straight or linear or rectilinear or have angles and sharp angles or right angles. It's, it's, um, I don't think it's how we're tuned as humans, like as biological creatures um, or psychologically either so so there's something familiar about it and I was talking I was talking to my brother Oren he leads Bamboo U which is a course that 
Yeah, it welcomes people from around the world to come and like do a deep dive into like everything from planting and harvesting bamboo all the way to to building with it or um, or building with other natural materials. You can really apply the philosophy. And so he's he's been doing an amazing thing with that. And he's he's pulling together a lot of cool people in the bamboo and natural building material world. Um, and he's got a podcast that he he taps into each of them. And I was talking to him in that context. And it sort of opened up these conversations that we had never even had together before. And one of them was like, okay, wait a minute. The past hundred years, like the Industrial Revolution is something that informs everything around us now, but it hasn't, it didn't happen very long ago. And we take for granted what came out of it, which is a world of systematized straight lines, quality control, perfection, and regularity and uniformity. And I was reading a book by Stefan Sagmeister called Beauty, which um, he pointed out is kind of a taboo thing in design and architecture in the past several decades, something I, I didn't even really realize because um, I was more in the art world where, yeah, you, you know, you might be looked down on a little, but you could, you could play with beauty. Um, <laughs> And then in fashion, like beauty can be a lot of things. But anyway, he talks about how the Industrial Revolution got it all wrong. That it isn't the most efficient way to try to plane everything down into a perfect component. And that there, it just blew my mind that there could be this whole other way of doing things. Um, I don't fully understand it yet. And what I do understand working with bamboo which is, has a natural and irregular form, it's tapering, it's hollow, it adds a lot of complexity to what we're trying to assemble and it relies on craftsmanship. But I have a suspicion that in a few hundred years, and this is what I was saying to him, in a few hundred years, we might look back um, on this century and say that that was the blip, that that was this weird tangent we took where we got into all these systems and protocols and that we thought that was the only efficient economical way to do anything and that we got it all wrrong and i could i i, I hope <laughs> i hope that there's a future where we recognize that recover from it and find a totally new and like dynamic guiding principle to design and technology and manufacturing and construction that brings us back in line with like what the world is made of and, and how the materials in it want to want to be participating, how they want to, how they, and, and acknowledging their unique properties. Yeah. I love what you're talking about in terms of asking the material what it wants. It reminds me of a quote that I'm sure everyone studied in architecture school, which is by Louis Kahn and talking about the brick. So it says, you say to a brick, what do you want, brick? And the brick says to you, I like an arc. And you say to brick, look, I want one too, but arches are expensive and I can use a concrete lintel. And then you say, what do you think of that brick? Brick says, I like an arc. Anyway, I think that there should be some sort of bamboo Allura Hardy quote out there um, because it's, yeah, I think it's amazing the work that you've done and it's so great to hear you talk about it. In terms of your design process, and um, you've obviously got a large team of really skilled people that you're working with, what is the design process like 
behind the scenes? How do you go from the concept stage to having a built form that is made of bamboo? So um, part of what I say will be, I guess, expected, but I'm not sure which parts those are because like, I've never worked in an architectural practice, in conventional architectural practice or really in any other one. Um, but um, I think we spend a bit more time um, on the site and, and really investigating the contours of the site when we're lucky enough to have them. We're, we're, we're likely to, to design into even a very steep contour of the land without retaining it where that where that's safe to do and to really perch into it nestle into it maybe sometimes we'll carve it out selectively and retain but we like i mean it's i think it's also just because um a lot of our early work is at green village which is down the river valley from green school and it's this like steep contoured terraced land with beautiful trees and so it's really a process of like oh this is a beautiful place how do i make room for us in it um, and there's, there's never been a piece of heavy machinery on the site. Bulldozing is out of the question. Um, and also, also we just, we want to, we want to keep what we love about the space and we don't want to mess with it because once you start messing with it, then you have to control the whole thing you have to retain it all and figure it all out. So, so that's just to say that like, we've, I mean, also in art school, like a blank canvas was like pretty daunting. So I like a site that gives you something, that gives you a tree to design the whole house around or or a view to like focus or a, you know, th- like these natural features I think are really important to, l- we just want to listen for them first before we put pen to paper. And even with a client, they might be like, oh, but I like this or that that you've done before, or like they might really want us to sketch right away, but I don't think it's about that. I think it's about like first the floor plan, like nestling that, like nestling that in, but while also remembering your own body. And like, if you can literally being on site and be like, okay, I sort of want to stand here and lean that way when I'm in this spot looking out in that direction. So how can I, what if the whole like curve of the roof kind of leaned that way? Or do I want, or do I, or does this area make me feel like I want to, lean forward and really like sweep out and see beyond that vista um, if there is one. And then you can you can really like make the whole building feel like the way that you, if you were insert whatever animal feels right there, like maybe a bird, like what would the, how would the bird settle into this spot? And is this a room that we want to settle in or is this a room that we want to be lifted up and inspired in? So there's different feelings to look for in different places on the site and also depending on the flow of the space. So we just like, we'll talk a lot about the flow of the space. We really try to draw where you'll go, uh, like just as daily routine through the space, how you'll flow, um, really guard that journey. Like try to like avoid like switchbacks or having a sharp, just, just really try to feel like where would you want to flow? And then from there, find where the walls might be. And if it's, curving site, like it's kind of no question that the house has to be full of curves. Sometimes we'll, we'll do it radial based on a circle and crescents and, and some geometry to it, or sometimes it will be purely organic. But very rarely on a steep curving terrace site would I feel like there's any business having a rectangular building there. Mm, yeah, I love this concept that you're talking about, which is 
that the curves of a building can work with and not act in opposition to the landscape. Um, and there are some really beautiful images online of some of your interior spaces and also some quotes that you've given um, in discussions about how the door doesn't always need to be the same shape. Do these interior spaces also react to the different feelings within a building that you're discussing? Yeah, actually, when I said in the TED Talk that um, I asked, why does it, why does the door have to be a rectangle? Um, I, I, got, I got a lot of answers to that. A lot of people explained, explained a lot to me about like why it is more practical and why it's more inclusive and like a lot of valid points. And I absolutely respect that doors are usually rectangular for many very good reasons. <laughs> I also um, made a comment about whether, um, whether women had certain kinds of strengths that maybe men had less, were less suited to, and that, that also provoked a little bit. But the door, <laughs> the, door, the door thing really got to people. And I also have experienced, like, I, in the early days, I toured an architect. I hadn't met very many architects at that point. And of course, aside from the ones in our team, but, but there was like an American guy, an architect visiting, and he like came to see this like kind of novelty project. And he was like, he looked at the moon door, which is what we call the big round spinning door on, on the, that we've, and he goes, he just like, this makes me mad. It's like, it's not fair. I don't get to have any fun like this in the US. They never let me do this in the US. Um, and, you know, like, yes, it's really good if a house can be accessed by a wheelchair, you know? Um, Absolutely. Like there are a lot of things to consider in every project. And I think inclusivity is a really, really important one. And, um, and, but why can't you also have a moon door? <laughs> like, so I, I just feel like, um, I feel like it's really worth asking questions that have, even if there are obvious answers and to see what room there is for, for other things that aren't expected or aren't typical. Um, so to have a to have a door that has a center pivot just also has a beautiful logic. Doors require hinges, which burdens one side of the frame much more than the other because gravity. And so why aren't doors center pivot, right? And there are reasons why not, but like, well, so should, like, do we ban them all together or? Or is there room to play and adventure into a direction? And so having a round door for me um, is, such a, is such a special thing psychologically because what it does is it sets your mind and your perceptions as you approach. And it really like gets you ready for being in a space with a different mindset. It signals you that this is not the kind of building that, you've, that you're typically in, that you've been in before. And it's like, it becomes a portal into a new world and, and you're better prepared to listen to the space and to, and to see it more clearly because, because you've been like introduced that way. And you realize like, this is a different, um, this is a different kind of space. So it's like, it really, it's a whole journey. Um, one thing that I got into a lot in, in art school is filmmaking, um, like pretty, pretty preliminary stuff. Like I did super eight film and things like this. And I loved the pacing of it. 
and the progression and the journey through time. And that's what happens when you enter a building and when you enter, when you, when you enter any, when you move your physical body <laughs> anywhere. So, um, we just did a project. We designed a green school for Tulum um, in Mexico. And we told the story basically as a film storyboard. Like, and then you arrive and then the next shot is going up the ramp and then going down into the, and we, we set it, we set up the whole presentation that way to take people on a journey. What, what a lot of, a lot of us say in the team is that um, working with bamboo requires you to be flexible. You have to sort of follow it, listen to it, accommodate for it, recognize its uniqueness and variety. And that requires us to get out of a, a controlling mindset of like just drawing something and saying that's that it, it, sh it shall be thus or like cast the concrete in a certain form or bend the steel at your own will. Um, rather, the, the material has so much personality and, and identity and strength and weakness and vulnerability that need to be um, designed for and protected against. So I think that shifts your whole perspective on how you relate to everything, including other people. You've got to have a you've got to have a lot of grace for for each other, um, and the journey of all of us being quite far out of anything one might be able to consider expertise, no matter what our past training or lack of it, means that we have to have a lot of room for each other's mistakes. Um, and we can't make big mistakes. We're building buildings. <laughs> so we, we make a lot of small ones along the way in terms of efficiency or process or, or assumption. And so, um, I mean, like, you know, the people in your life who, who sort of you, you check in with to be like, wait, so how am I doing compared to how I was doing before? You know, the sort of check-ins and my, so my husband will be like, um, yeah, you're even in the first few years, he's like, um, yeah, you're upset, but you cry about bigger things this year than last year. <laughs> it's like the problems just keep getting more worth fighting for and the stresses continue and yeah, you cry about bigger deals. So um, keep going. <laughs> yeah, I think growth and natural building is a really interesting topic, especially when you're working with something that is, you know, physically growing like grass, but has the capability to become these um, amazing, amazing structures. Um, and I'm sure working with this material has been um, an incredible journey. I'm interested in this idea of curves in buildings and um, the concept of being a woman. Um, did you have any ideas that you wanted to share regarding these two aspects of your identity? I, I think it's kind of an inescapable parallel, the sort of like curvy thing and the being a woman designer thing. So, But I would like to say that there are a lot of men in my team who do curves so well and like I don't want to take that away from them. Curves are human. Um, it's not, and, it, and there were curves in this work long before I joined and, and the guys who were initiating it all were all guys. Um, and so like, just, just to be careful and clear about it, I think, I think also that my age, I'm 39 and so I was born 81 
And I was, I was brought up by a super adventurous mom who was like very much like, oh my goddess, instead of oh my god. <laughs> and like, <laughs> um, you know, not like, not, a, not, not really, wouldn't call herself a hippie, but like she was, she was, um, she was tapped into like things that, that certainly all previous generations weren't talking about. And so I had an awareness of being a woman, being different from men, being, um, that being special, that sometimes being a disadvantage was, was clear. But I, I think compared to like, I have sisters who are a lot younger. My sisters are in their early twenties and the way that they're tapped into and conscious of gender issues is like, makes me feel like probably I'm in a bit of denial about a lot of it. I don't think I've realized or spent time dwelling on or consciously been able to navigate like a lot of things that were um, to do with being female in the world that I was, that I've been in. Um, it's also, it's also something to note that like, it's not that expected that, um, that a woman would be that in charge of anything um, or the boss of a, team of mostly men in most parts of the world, but like, especially certainly in Asia, that's not something to take for granted that that would work. Um, so I think sometimes there's, there's other things going for me. Like there's a, there's a legacy thing. Like my dad founded this. So I'm not just like some, new, some fresh new face, like trying to do something. It's like, I had a lot of respect by virtue of my dad and stepmom founding the green school. And then this having already been initiated. And so there's, there's a natural sense of that here where like, of course the child would continue the work. Um, and both of my brother and I are involved in the work. Um, so, so there's, I think we always have, we all have different privileges and different, um, different tools in our tool belt. Um, and I think that I, I can't, I can't say, I'm sure there have been, but I can't say um, I, I have to assume that it's been an advantage overall. Probably a lot of, there's probably a lot of ways that I've, that it's, a, that it's hurt, but I, I'm not really aware of or, or focusing on or taking time on that. Um, but I think I, I think I bring a, and there's so many different things to, to talk about because I don't know where to go. <laughs> yeah, I think it's definitely worthwhile to discuss it in that way because whilst I think it's great to present people as founders and to acknowledge the effort um, that comes behind that and the constant determination that's required to really get a brand or an organisation up and running, we do all sit within cultural contexts and I also don't want to sort of be portraying people as if they're the sole force behind entities or design teams. Whilst the buildings of Ibuku are beautiful and intricate in their details, I am sure that there have been some challenges along the way. What have been some of the difficulties you have faced when building the architecture that is Ibuku? Um, I think if my child self um, came on a tour and then heard that she grew up to do this, that 
like I couldn't have imagined anything more worthwhile. That said, it's extremely hard to, to be in anything, honestly, other than continual, like, um, constructive discontent. It's like, there's, there's a piece of it that just like, like, could go so much more smoothly, could be figured out to actually happen in a way that like, that was graceful and like positive. And, and I, I didn't approach it from a, like signing up to be, um, like, you know, people sometimes choose a career and they're like, and they learn about it and they're like, okay, well, if, if you're going to be an architect, like you got to deal with this kind of practical stuff and this sort of technical stuff and this sort of client navigating stuff and this sort of, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that you might become aware of that, and I sort of um, missed that stage because I sort of slipped into it from the side door um, that I still struggle with. I'm like, it's not worth doing it if it takes this stress and this effort at certain times. Um, and then by the next day, it is worth it. And I, I keep going. But there is a lot that I have to come to terms with that I think is just the reality of any any design effort or construction project that I still really push against and struggle with and don't know if I'm suited for. There's a whole lot of challenges that have to be tackled for this to go smoothly. Even, even 10 years in, there's like so much we need to put in place to have it like to have it lift off properly and then go harmoniously. And like, like I said, like maybe this kind of thing just can't happen harmoniously. And, and you know, and the level of innovation and then the level of expectation and the emotion involved, because it's like, because people who choose this, who choose our, our kind of work, like are inescapably emotional about it. It's caught their heart in some way, especially if it's a home, a private home. Um, but but even for developers, like there's a piece of it that is um, that's so emotional. And I um, and so I really see that that needs to like that I need to find a, a smooth, good way for all of that to happen. And I'm and there's so many different areas where I can see how to like refine it and develop it. And I'm I've just been good enough at that and good enough at attracting the people and collaborators along the way to keep that all going. And yet it does come back to like, um, what piece of it is really worth doing for me. And the problem so far has been that in this innovative world, it can't happen. It, it isn't existing unless I do the, I, I keep an eye on and do to different degrees, depending on who's who's here to be able to do what. Um, I have to keep the whole like caravan moving in order to get to like curl up in a corner of one of them, one of the coaches and like draw. <laughs> and so um, sometimes I hear the voice in my head when, you know, people are like in a podcast or in a Instagram, whatever, and people are like, Oh well, you know this is what my soul calls me to do. This sort of this sort of creative work or whatever. Or or when I actually like, um, yeah. So and I'm like, wait, they get to think about that. <laughs> they get to choose, like, um, but because <laughs> because when you're good enough, 
at things, you risk having to do them, having to keep do them, doing them. And there's a certain number of things that I've been good enough at to pull off enough to keep us going um, and to get the jobs done. And if I just was hopeless at those things, then that would have sorted itself out. <laughs> Free of that kind of responsibility. Um, but I'm not good enough at it to feel like I'm excelling and to really thrive off of that. So I, like, I'm not sure at what, at what point I either come to terms with being um, in a state of like just getting like to maybe relate to a small fraction of, of it as being like powerfully self-expressed or if in order to self-express in this way, um, like do I have to come to terms with it or can I, can I carve it out? Can I design a way for it, for there to be room for me to spend more time doing the part that I feel is my superpower? Because it's so uncomfortable spending so much time doing things that you're just kind of troubleshooting, logically asking dumb questions about and trying to root through. You know what I mean? That sort of like struggle of like figuring stuff out and, and, and then like that like groove of like, oh, I feel good at this and I'm just doing it for three hours in a row. Yeah. So when you're working on projects, what things do you enjoy the most and where do you find that creative spark and the joy in continuing um, when projects get really hectic and really um, full on and full of challenges? Um, but yeah, what what inspires you to keep going? I... I think that I can find it in a lot of places. I can find it like just, you know, in the design exercise of figuring out like a lot of things, like a lot of different types of things. Um, I think it's really important that, that the way that we use our minds and, the, and the, that, that we can be really versatile about that. And like, if I had to sit on the side of the road with someone and figure out something about the design pieces of something to do with the vehicle that we were trying to ride, like I hope that I'd be able to rise to that challenge and get some joy out of out of that sort of design investigation. Um, but, um, but in our world, like I, I, I think I really find it on site and I find it on site before designing for the house. And then also like, while it's half up and then like, Oh wait, let's make this curve that way. And then what would feel right to have above us? And that is like diametrically opposed to a efficient and proper like design and construction process. <laughs> um, but like, that's where I can really make the magic happen. So I've actually been really formulating thoughts and, and writing down like what conversations need to be had with someone before like commencing on a project with them. And one of them is, um, listen, there are gonna be a lot of things during the process that we will find better, that we will find more beautifully if we don't figure them out in advance. And that means we won't have the budget figured out in advance. And that means we need design time dedicated on site and respected. But if you give me the, the space to do that and, and like, you know, we want to set the expectations clearly in advance so there's room planned ahead for that, then I can do that and find those magical things that like, I mean, I could point out to you in so many of our projects the things that came up that would never have happened on paper. And even in the, in, the, in the physical model or in the 3D model, we find these jewels on site and we give them away because we can't um, very often like figure out how to negotiate and properly cost and, and, um, and, and justify them. But like, 
to have the space in a project to do that and to plan on that and to have a good communication between the design and site teams to know that, um, that anticipate that that's going to happen and schedule for it, that like, that would be a joy. Um, and I think there's a lot of joy in, um, in, in doing it together. Like, I said like drawing in the corner of a caravan by myself, but I think the most exciting design things I've ever discovered have happened in, in the process of talking to, to talking together with other people in our team about it, like during during the creating of it. Um, and I think that there's like maybe a sort of like improv. Um, there's like a on your feet, like un, a little bit under time pressure inevitably and like, okay, how do we, and it happens all the time, you know, because you can't think three-dimensionally enough to catch the gap between that varying tapering pole and that other one and anticipate for that. So you'd like, there's all these things that we just have to do um, on site that, that you could sort of patch it together or you could find this other way. And so we're always looking for that. Yeah. And I think innovation comes at so many points in a design process, just like you're saying, it's there's innovation in conceptual thinking, but there's also innovation in delivery. And when we're talking about a process and a material like yours, like bamboo on site, um, I'm sure there are so many ways to do it. And it's been really great to hear you talk about that and unpack some of the thinking and the working behind um, getting these buildings on the ground. Well, um, Elora, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, um, your feelings and your ideas about what it's like to work with Bamboo and the establishment of Ibuku as a female founder. I have really, really enjoyed listening to you and, yeah, it's definitely been just amazing to have um, had so many great conversations with women and starting to chat to um, people who are overseas such as yourself. So, Thank you so much. Well, in, especially in a time like this, just having the opportunity to to work on projects is like a wonderful reprieve from the reality of the world. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, okay, well, thank you, um, Allura. I look forward to editing and publishing this episode. Thank you so much, Bridget. I look forward to hearing more of your um, more of your podcasts over time as well. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Next week, we're heading to New York to speak to another female founder, Julia Gamolina from Madam Architect. I hope you can join us then. Madam Architect and what it's become is so beyond, you know, just me or, or just women in a certain firm. It's tapped into something really global. It evolved so, so naturally and so organically. I feel like I, I'm getting so many different degrees <laughs> through, through doing this work and having all these conversations that um, I'm, I'm certainly not the same person that I was, you know, two years ago or even five years ago or seven years ago when I was just starting in the industry.